Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back. So today I get to co-lead worship and preach. Those are always kind of marathon Sundays, but I enjoy them. Heidi had a uh, retreat this last weekend, and how many, there's a few of you here that managed to come back after the retreat. That's good. Thank you for making it. I heard it was awesome. So we're, uh, we're, we're cruising through a sermon series on Epiphany, and you guys have heard over and over and over again now what Epiphany is, but I thought of another story that describes what Epiphany is like. So you ready for it? Luke's like, yes, I want another story. Uh, 24-ish years ago, in the summertime, I went on a mission trip to Republic Washington, and with a whole bunch of teenagers... And we slept in tents outside during this mission trip. And then during the day, we worked with our hands. We literally, uh, at one like really way out there log cabin, dug a septic tank for this guy by hand. Okay, so a whole bunch of teenagers digging septic tanks by hand with a, with a shovel. And we were putting up fencing. And these are all kids from, you know, the city. These are, these are city kids. These aren't farm kids. These are city kids. And the, all of the youth staff that was there with me, we were all city folk, okay? So we were soft and weak when we got there. And after three or four days of that, you can imagine the odor that was coming out of all the tents, right? Well, one morning, I woke up after a really hard night. It was actually right before I found out I had cancer, and so I had some stuff happening to me that was really hard overnight. But So I woke up with like next to no sleep, exhausted from all the work, and I unzipped my tent and poked my head out. And across the way from me, I don't know, maybe 25 yards, was another tent. And that tent unzipped at the same moment, and out comes this young woman wearing Coke bottle glasses, and her hair was sticking up at 90-degree angles from her head. And she climbs out of the tent and gets up and goes to walk, take the long walk to the bathroom in the morning. You know how it goes. And there was this moment, it was like the fog lifted. And I, I literally believe that I heard a voice from heaven that said, this is going to be your wife. And I laughed. I'm like, you are crazy. That woman was Heidi. And that was the moment where I was like, oh, it was an epiphany. My eyes were opened. And you know what? I didn't see her that way for a very long time, actually. But we did eventually fall in love, and we did eventually get married. And we've been married for 23 years at the end of this month. So I was about right, 24 years about when that happened. So I, yeah, you, Janice is the only person clapping. The rest of you are like, what does that have to do with anything? Um, I'm just it's Valentine's weekend and all that. And I thought of that story as she was gone away from me and remembering it was an epiphany moment. It was like the clouds lifted and there's this person that this could be my wife. And she was. That's epiphany. We just, you know, the fog lifts, something that was always there right in front of us, not necessarily what we expected, not even what we were looking for in the moment, and our eyes are open to it. And that's epiphany. And so we've been looking at all these stories through uh, the, the, the gospel of Matthew specifically, uh, just Jesus' coming and the star and the, the doves descending on him. People going, this is something different. Their eyes are being opened. The water into wine. The disciples going, God's doing something different inside of us. And then we jumped into the Sermon on the Mount. Which I got to tell you, as a pastor, is, is crazy because one, it's the best sermon ever written. 
Number two, for 2,000 years, we've been preaching sermons on this sermon. And so I got to this sermon, and I'm going, what in the world could I possibly say about this that would be for us today? And then Heidi goes away on this retreat, and I settle down to read the passage that I would be, it would be the next in line, okay? So we're disciplining ourselves to stay with this for a little while. So I had to preach this next passage. This was assigned to me. This is my duty for this week. And I would have skipped it because the passage that I was given was the salt and light passage. And now you guys are all going, right, what else can you say about salt and light? It is six small verses, um, not even six small verses, 13 through 16, three small verses. And Jesus says something so profound that it has had repercussions ever since. And that's what I get to preach on today. Last week was the Beatitudes, and we were looking at basically, like, Jesus is saying, the people that are standing there, you are the blessed people, right? You are the people of the blessing is another way of saying it. That God has blessed you, and you are the people of that blessing, and you're living it out. And now he comes to them, and he says this very, very simple statement, and I want to read it to you. There's three verses. It says this, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but, puts, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus, I pray that uh, as I stumble my way through these profound words of yours, that you would speak again to us, that we would hear your voice echoing through the ages and speaking to us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So this sermon was written to people who had been following Jesus throughout the Judean wilderness, okay? He'd been walking around from city to city, hanging out in Capernaum, different places. And now he's out in the, the hills, and everybody has come to him to be taught. They're from all over the region. There was people from literally all over the known world at the time. There'd be Romans, there'd be Greeks, there'd be Jews, there would be people uh, from Africa. It, this, this whole mixing, melting pot of people who had come to hear and see Jesus. They'd come to see the one that they had heard about. You know, maybe it was a rumor. They had come to listen. They came to be healed. They came to have their lives put back together. They have come in hopes of really just seeing and hearing the one who they hoped would rescue them, particularly from Rome in that day. And Jesus says to them, okay, folks, all of you people from all over the world and all your different languages and all your different socioeconomic standards, all of your different relational hurts and wounds, some of you are subjected to Rome, some of you are free, all of you people who have come to me for these things, for healing, for, for hope, you are the people of the blessing. You are blessed. But here we are 2,000 years removed from that sermon. I want you just to imagine for a moment that you are still in that crowd. You are still a part of that sermon that is being preached through 2,000 years of history. Jesus is still speaking to us. We are here. We have come to this place today to see the one that we've heard about, to listen, to be healed, to have our lives put back together. We've come in hope of rescue. We've come to meet Jesus, not to hear a sermon from a pastor, not to have a great worship band, not to see a cool building. We've come to see Jesus. That's why we come. 
we come and we listen and we receive from him and we find that we too are the people of the blessing. You are blessed by the presence of God. So who are you? Today, the people of the blessing. Jesus says to you, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That is in this day and age, not a very profound statement. The salt of the earth, because salt for us is, is you know, we use it in our food. We have a little salt shaker maybe on the dinner table. Uh, we can go down to the grocery store, and if you go grocery shopping and you had to purchase salt, it would probably be one of the cheapest things in your basket, right? You could buy a gigantic container of it for just a few dollars. But in the, the days that this was being written and being spoken, salt was one of the most valuable commodities on the planet. Uh, Jesus is actually, this is really cool. I discovered this this last week. Jesus is riffing on a Roman saying. Believe it or not, the, this is a saying that the Romans would use regularly. And they would say this, there is nothing more useful than sun and salt. Nothing more useful than sun and salt. Jesus isn't just being relevant trying to connect with his audience, though. Uh, because I think if Jesus had said this to his Roman audience, uh, I don't know if you've watched The Chosen season three, but we're watching when Jesus actually does this sermon and there is a Roman soldier in the crowd and at the end of it, he's like this. His mouth is just hanging open and he's speechless because what Jesus says about salt is like crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So there's this saying that the Romans were using and it's a, a, a modern, like kind of like our modern sayings, like you'd say, you only live once, right? YOLO. Or we'd say, uh, just saying. You ever use that one? You're talking and you say something, it's maybe slightly snarky or slightly rude. And you're like, just saying, just saying, like it make it a little bit easier. Or this one I use frequently. I know, right? You guys know that? So this is a Roman saying. It's as common as these vernacular little things. So they're like, I know, right? There's, just, there's nothing more nor useful than sun and salt. Their universe, it was universally used amongst these people. And so this saying, Jesus is coming and he's riffing on it and he's saying, look, if you're a follower of mine, if you are in this sermon hearing, if you are listening to me, if you are a part of the people of the blessing, there is nothing more useful than sun and salt. In fact, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So I've been thinking a lot about this salt. It's pretty crazy. Salt is the first image that Jesus uses for the people of blessing. And it's hard to realize, as I said before, how valuable salt was in his day. There's this book out there that you know, I never usually never quote books that I've not read. But this is a book I've been wanting to read for a while. It's actually on my little Amazon cart, and it's called Salt, A History of the World. And it talks about salt. If you, you go look into it, it says this. It's salt is the only rock we eat. Think about it just for a second. It's the only rock that we eat. It's also arguably, as a, as a mineral, has shaped history more than gold. Like, we value gold, we value silver, but throughout history, until 100 years ago or so, salt more shaped the world than, than even gold. In Roman times, they often paid soldiers. Once they were out of the like, main Roman provinces where Rome, Rome money was really useful, once they got out a little further, they would pay their, their soldiers in salt because they could take and trade that salt for other things. It was more useful than gold coins to them when you were out in the far-flung regions of the empire. If you were a lousy soldier, they would say, he's not worth his salt. You guys heard that statement before? Worth his salt? That's where it comes from. And the word salary 
actually comes from the word salt. Sal is the word that is, it's the Latin word for salt. If you speak Spanish or French, that's, it's really similar, like, you know, sal. So salary comes from salt. That is how important salt was in the old world. It was used to flavor food, just like we do, but it was also used as a preservative. They would pack meat into barrels and fill it with salt, and the salt would draw the water out of it. It would prevent bacteria and other organisms from getting in, and it would preserve and protect the food. Now, before electricity, before refrigerators, before the conveniences we have this day, you can understand how important salt would be, because all of your food would need to be protected. So when Jesus comes and he says to the people, you are the salt of the earth, he's not saying that you're some common, uh, you know, salt shaker salt sitting on the table. He's not saying that, you know, you're, you're the cheap thing at the grocery store. I spend more money on vegetables than I spend on you. What he's saying is that you are extremely valuable. You are the salt of the earth. You are extremely useful and extremely important. You're extremely useful and extremely important and extremely valuable to God. And you are extremely useful, extremely important, and extremely valuable in this world. It's not just about a a heaven thing. It's about here and now, that you are the salt of the earth. You flavor this world with God's kingdom. You preserve this world from judgment. But salt doesn't exist for itself. And we don't often think about that, but salt isn't the main course, right? If you go to a restaurant and you sit down to the meal, more, more often than not, especially really good restaurants, you don't even find salt on the table unless it's really coarse salt to put on your little roll because that's always nice to stick. If you have that salt on top of a little roll with a little bit of butter, pretty amazing. But generally speaking, they salt the food perfectly and they hand it to you and, and it's the main course, right? It's super good, but the salt isn't the main course. If the salt was the main course, you would be sitting there just drinking water, right? It'd be terrible. But salt was never meant to be the main course. It doesn't exist for itself. It's there to bring flavor out. Salt is there to help season the food, to bring out the good flavor that is already there. And so it is for us, the people of the blessing. We are important, but we are not the main meal. We say that again. As Christians in this world, we are important, but we are not the main meal. The main meal is God. The main meal is the kingdom. We're just here to flavor it, just to bring the goodness of the meal out so that others may see it and give glory to God. So it is for us, the people of the, above the blessing. We are important, but we're not the main meal. At our best, when the church is at its best, when you are at your best as a people of the blessing, we're serving and living for Jesus and for others and not ourselves. The church is only really doing what the church was created to do when it is doing it for others. And we often get confused about that. I mean, why do we do this thing on Sunday morning? We do it for Jesus so that he was worshiped. We do it for you. We organize these things for you so that you can grow in your faith and in your spirit day by day following God. Why do we do mission trips? Why do we go out in the city and clean the streets? Why do we give to the poor? Why do we do all of these things? We do it because at our best, we are made for others. We are not the main meal. We are important to the kingdom of God, but we must remember that Jesus is the main meal. 
but it is quite the compliment to be called the salt of the earth. Because Jesus is saying, you are valuable, you are important, you are needed. Without you, this world is bland. And then the second image he gives us is light. Jesus describes the people of the blessing, you and me, and the people for 2,000 years of history before us as being light. And this is another huge compliment. And it's hard for us to get our brains around that because we live in a world where light has become pollution, right? Like last week or week before last, there was a green comet. Did you guys hear about that? going to come around our, our planet and it, you'll get to another chance to see it in about 50,000 years. Okay, the next time this sucker's coming around. And I was like, tried to see it, but you, I could never see it because it was too bright. The lights of WSU were shining and it just it obscured the sky. That and it's winter and Pullman and there was clouds. Okay, so there's both. But if you go, you go places around the world and you want to look at the stars, if you're anywhere near a city, the city light pollutes, right? And you can't see the stars. In some ways, light is just ubiquitous. That's a big word. I got just threw it in there. Ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Thank you. Nice word. Thanks, Jan. That is a good word. But from Jesus' day, where light was precious, where light was candles and lanterns, light was incredibly important. And it's this huge compliment to the people that they are light. And it's confusing because Jesus actually says in the book of John that he is the light of the world, right? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then here he says, you are the light of the world. Now that's a little bit confusing, but at the same time, it's this massive compliment. Can you imagine Jesus saying, look, I'm the light of the world. And so are you. You are like me. We are the light of the world together. There is nothing more valuable and nothing more useful than sun and salt. Before electricity, before we could flip a switch and turn on a light, a flashlight or a light bulb, before we could turn on the lights at a football field and watch a game until 11 o'clock at night, light was precious. I once went, and I've told this story before, but I feel like it's a good place to tell it again, went uh, cave exploring in Arizona with my uncle. And it was a unexplored, it was called an un, un, unexplored cave. But, you know, people had been exploring it, but it hadn't been mapped out. And so we'd go in there with just our headlamps or our flashlights and we'd go walk in and you'd turn that thing off and you could see nothing. I mean, you were blind, literally blind. It's black as black as black can be. It was dark. And then you turn the light on and you could see just a little ways in front of you and walk. Well, we were in that cave when my flashlight died. And my uncle and his friend realized they didn't know where the exit was. <laughs> terrifying, okay? Absolutely terrifying. So what they said to me was, you stay right here. I want you to not move from this spot. And there was a, a piece of string on the ground. He says, we're going to follow the string and see if it takes us to the, to the end, end of the cave. But you stand here, and so we'll be able to follow that line back to you. Okay. So I sit down on the floor, and I hold on to that string as they wander their way out. And you can imagine how long it felt, right? I mean, it went utterly black. I was as blind as could be with no light of my own, just sitting there waiting. In a cave like that, even sound gets absorbed. So once they were 15 steps away from me, I couldn't hear them talking. I couldn't see their lights. I couldn't see anything. And I was alone in the dark in the middle of a cave with no food, no water, and no light. And they left. And they were gone for what seemed like 
five hours. It might have been only 30 minutes. I don't know. But this felt like a long time. But eventually, coming back, I see this little pinpoint of light. Can you imagine how precious and important that little bit of light was to me? And as it got closer and closer, I realized that one of their flashlights had also died, so we were down to one. And they got to me, and they said, this does lead us out. And we had to follow the line, but with one little teeny tiny point of light to lead, us, to lead the way. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, you are the light of the world. This is how precious and important you are. He doesn't say that you're a lighthouse. He doesn't say that you're a halogen, those crazy halogen lights that the kids are putting on their cars nowadays so that you go down the highway and your eyeballs melt when they're coming at you. You know those lights? He doesn't say you're that. The image is that you're a candle put up on a shelf in a home. The image is that together, all of our little candles become a little flickering city on the hillside that everybody can see. You might think that you don't have much to offer. You might think that you're just one person. You might think that you don't have much time. You don't have much gifting. You don't have much talent or much wealth. But what you have, God has given you, and you are exactly enough. Every light matters. Just as much as a single LED light in a giant cave matters. Just as though you were somebody lost and alone in the dark and this tiny pinprick of light comes to them, you matter. You are important to the kingdom of God. When I say you matter, I'm, I'm, I mean you matter as a human being, but you matter as a representative of God's kingdom here on earth. I think that we can all agree that there is some darkness in our world today. Yeah? Just a little bit of darkness. And it can be kind of discouraging as followers of Jesus. When you look at the news in the morning and we can be filled with fear at all the bad news. We encounter people who are skeptical about God. They're angry or they're frustrated or they're hurt by the church. The amazing thing about light, and my story illustrates this, is that the darker the place is, the less light is actually needed. The darker the world, the less light is actually needed to illuminate and for people to take notice of the light. No matter how small your light is, it's exactly what the world needs. And so Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God the Father in heaven. You don't have to change the world to give God glory. You don't have to be an amazing uh, you know, person in society. You don't have to be wealthy or rich or do crazy, amazing things that everybody notices. You just have to be light. Just your little bit of light, just your little bit of salt is enough. We don't have to fix all the problems and all the hurts that we encounter. We just simply need to let our light shine, and that will bring glory to God. It's the smallest acts of kindness the simplest gestures of welcome to somebody else, the humblest sharing of your talent or your time. It's, it's, I don't know how to paint, but I will take a paintbrush and I will sit here and dab and paint to bring glory to God and to, yeah, you're looking at me. She's, there's somebody here, just a little paintbrush for hours yesterday, giving glory to God by her little act of service to the church. 
the smallest things that we do bring a little bit of light to this world. And so it's important. I like how Charles Spurgeon, he was a, a preacher in the 1800s, he said this. He says, the Bible is not the light of the world. It's the light of the church. Okay? So the Bible teaches us. It illuminates God. It helps us see God. It, it shines a light and helps us open our eyes to see who God is. But the Bible is not the light of the world. It's the light of the church. But the world does not read the Bible, Charles Spurgeon says. The world reads Christians. Say that again. But the world does not read the Bible. The world reads Christians. You are the light of the world. Feels a little bit overwhelming, doesn't it? How can we be the light of the world? We're not Jesus. I find it encouraging to remember the moon. Okay, I told somebody this morning that I really wanted to be an astronaut one day. I did, I, as a kid, I imagined myself going to the moon. And then I imagined myself being the first pastor on Mars. That would have been interesting. I still suppose it's a possibility. You, know, you never know. If you guys want to pitch in on that, we'll, we'll call, we'll call uh, who's that guy? The, the guy? the Tesla guy. We'll call him and see if we can get me onto Mars. My kids would be like, yeah, dad goes to Mars. Anyway, see you in four years. Uh, anyway, I find it helpful to remember the moon when I feel a little overwhelmed by this whole being the light of the world. When you look at the moon, it's, if you look at it closely especially, it's a battered piece of rock floating in space, right? Asteroids have hit that thing. There's giant craters in the side of it. There are mountains and hills that weren't there by natural forces, but by things hitting it from outside, just coming in and smashing it. It is beaten up. It is scarred. But that moon, that beaten and broken and battered moon, can light up the darkest night. And not because it has a light of its own, but because it reflects the light of the sun. In the same way, we don't put our own light out into the world. You know, that's kind of that universalist idea. You put light out in the world and light comes back to you. And we talked about that last week. There's a little bit of truth in that. When we do good things, good things come back to us. This is part of how God ordered the world. But it's not our light that we put into the world. It's the light of Jesus that we are reflecting. When we are doing that well, when we are being fully ourselves and we are following Jesus, we're, we're following Jesus in the way that we've been called to follow. It's amazing how much light we can offer the world. And the darker the world is around us, the more important, the light. But here's the thing. Salt and light. It's not something that you become, but it's something you are. One of the most common questions we all receive is, who are you, right? Who are you? We don't, people don't usually ask it that way. Not, that kind of sounds rude, right? Who are you? You're like, <laughs> who am I? But they say, what, what do you do for a living? Where do you live? Do you go to school? They want to they wanna find out who you are by finding out about your life. Who are you? And I've been asked that question just like you have many, many times in my life, but I don't think that I have ever answered it with the words, I am the salt of the earth. Or maybe even a little less humble, I am the light of the world. <laughs> you, gotta, you guys are going to go do that now, aren't you? Next time somebody asks you what you do, I, I am the light of the world. And they're going to think you're starting a new religion. But you are. You are the salt of the earth. 
and you are the light of the world. Jesus does not tell us to become the salt of the earth or to become the light of the world. He just says, you are the people of the blessing. You are blessed when people curse you. You are blessed when you, people revile you and hate you. You are blessed when you are mourning. You are blessed when you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And because you are the blessed people, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Are, not the pirate version. Trying to emphasize the word are, and you're laughing at me. You really, really are the salt of the earth. He doesn't tell us to be the salt. He doesn't tell us to be the light. He doesn't tell us to work harder and become saltier and to become more bright. Be who you are. Be the salt of the earth. He has told us that we already are because we are his disciples. Because we follow in his way and in his footsteps. Because we are the people of the blessing. And all we have to do to be the salt and light in this world is to continue following Jesus day by day. We don't have to be the main meal. We just season it. We don't have to produce so much light that nobody can see anything else. We just reflect the light of God. So what does that look like for us today? Moving from Jesus' sermon 2,000 years ago to us today, what does it mean for us? How, what does it look like when we reflect the light of the sun? It's pretty practical, really. And it's really tangible. It's something people can get their hands around. When we, when we first came to Pullman Foursquare, we did a book called The Tangible Kingdom. And the whole idea was that we're bringing God's kingdom in ways that people can get their hands on, that they can get their brains around. It's something that can be tasted and seen in the world, like salt and light. It's something that makes a difference in the world, a tiny one, but a difference to other people. It looks like looking into the eyes of another person and speaking a kind word. It looks like acknowledging people as a person rather than uh, an object to be used or somebody to help you get further down the road in your life. Try doing that with somebody who you label as unworthy, maybe somebody who is homeless, somebody who's a little off mentally, somebody who doesn't dress like you or act like you or think like you. Being salt and light is to be generous with your compassion, with your time and your money, to care for other peoples and to make a difference in their lives even though nobody ever sees it. Being salt and light in the world is starting a conversation or rebuilding a relationship when what you mostly feel inside of you is indifference or fear or anger or hurt. It's moving toward forgiveness and the healing of a relationship that's been broken. It's praying that God will bless others with all the good gifts that you want for yourself with all of the healing that you want for your loved ones. And it's praying that for those who hurt you, who are different from you, and with those you disagree with. The prophet Isaiah 
talks about loosing the bonds of injustice and letting the oppressed go free. It's what Jesus started his ministry with. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and freedom to the captives and sight for the blind. So maybe salt and light look kind of like politics that aren't dependent on control and power, that establish a world order that is equitable for everybody, that lifts up the poor and needy and the unseen. It recognizes the humanity of everybody. The question is, would you support that kind of legislation? Would you vote for that kind of candidate? And dare I say, would you be that kind of candidate? Crazy. I've never told anybody that they should join politics. But if you can be salt and light in politics, do it. God is calling you and we need you. Being salt and light in this world is faithfulness and commitment to others. And it's shown by listening, by being available, by spending time. I was shocked at how much pastoral ministry went on around this church yesterday as we painted. Listening to one another and listening to our questions and just being together in the presence of God as we did something as simple as painting. But that would mean slowing down, rearranging our schedule. This one's hard for me, and it's why I wrote it. It's valuing presence over efficiency and productivity. It's choosing a life of self-giving rather than taking and acquiring. It's vulnerability rather than defensiveness and intimacy rather than isolation. It means you might probably, probable possibility, will get hurt from time to time. It's loving God, it's loving your neighbor, it's loving your enemy, and it's loving yourself. It means that a choice to love comes before your feelings. Jesus says, let's not lose our saltiness. Let's not hide our light, because now more than ever, the world needs us. When Jesus says, what good is salt that has lost its saltiness? He's, he's speaking to the Jewish leaders of the day, who were the people of the blessing, who had forgot what it meant to be blessed. And because they thought the blessing looked one way, they were no longer salt in the world. They were not bringing the God flavors out in the world. They were not bringing light into the darkness, but they were adding to the darkness. And it's my hope and prayer that we don't get there again, that we don't become a, a candle that has had a basket put over the top of it. Because you know what happens when you do that? The flame goes out and the light disappears. And as impossible as it seems that salt could lose its saltiness, if we live for ourselves, and if we become self-seeking, and we realize, and we think that we are the main meal, suddenly all the salt has gone out of us, and we're no longer useful. So let us not lose our saltiness. Let's not lose our brightness. Let's not hide our light, because now more than ever, the world needs us. So I want to end this sermon in really good time with a question that I just want you to ponder. So Heidi and I like to practice, and the staff actually just did this this last week. We did what's called the examine, and that sounds like a terrible test, right? It's, like, it's not just an exam, it's an examine, and it's even worse. But what it is, it's just you 
take a minute or five minutes or 10 minutes to think back over this last day, week, month, year. We're just going to make it the last seven days. Just to think back over this last seven days. And I want you to ask this question of yourself. What is one way in this last week that God was glorified because you were salt or light in the world? Simplest act of kindness, simplest gesture of forgiveness, most tangible ways in which we show the love of God to the world. I'm going to give you a minute or so to just think about that. And then when we're done, let's just give God glory and say, thank you, God, for using me as salt and light in the world. All right? Let's take a minute of silence. I hope God's brought several things to your mind, not just one. Let's just lift our hands together and, and give God glory and just say, thank you, God, for using us. Jesus, we thank you that we are salt and light, that it is not a struggle to become salt and light because it is what you have done in us. And as much as we don't understand that, God, we submit ourselves to you and ask you to use us again. We give you glory. We praise you for using us as salt and light. May this church, God, become a city on a hill, a light that cannot be hidden. God, may we be a salt that brings out the God flavors of this world, that brings the kingdom flavors of this world, that as we walk as people of the blessing, that we would be and bring your kingdom, which seems like an upside-down kingdom of this world, but that the world might know that they're the ones that are upside down, <laughs> that your kingdom is meant to work a certain way. And God, it brings goodness, it brings wholeness, it brings peace, it brings joy, it brings love and light. May we be that, Jesus, for this world. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to close by singing the doxology and praying a blessing over you. So would you stand with me? We're done a little bit early, and we're going to let the kids have their Sunday school class. So don't go grabbing your kid and run off. Let them, let them enjoy their time, okay? So let's sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. I don't know if you heard it.
but Jesus loves you. He really does. The Son of God loves you, and we love you too, and we will see you next week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you. May his countenance rest upon you, and may he give you peace as you go and be salt and be light in the world who you were made to be. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a big amen on the screen. Wow, that was cool. See you guys next week.